Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, come on, Gavin. You think the peak of musical accomplishment was Patula Clark singing downtown? Yes. The following podcast contains... Only I didn't say fudge. And for gosh sake, watch your language. Watch your profanity. Right, I'm sorry. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you were worried about the demonic influence of Dungeons and Dragons and then you let your son buy heavy metal albums instead, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 381, the Shout, Shout, Shout with the Devil edition of the show, and it's part two of Spooktacular 2022, where we talk about the devil's time as a music producer. Stay tuned. What the Hell We Thinking Podcast is brought to you by Lucifer and the Lucitones, the world's only satanic polka band. Why should rock and roll get all the good music, and who says the devil can't oompa? Not us. We're Lucifer and the Lucitones, and we're here to oompa the devil right into your soul. Our lead accordionist, Lev Kowalski, heads an ensemble of Wisconsin's hottest polka players, singing the hits for your bingo halls and summer festivals, and all influenced by the Dark Lord Satan. Our hit song in Hell There Is Beer for the Wicked and Infernal Valley Polka are sure to be hits at your next Oktoberfest. So when it comes time to bring the house down, why not bring it down with the diabolical sounds of Lucifer and the Lucitones? But every few years, these little they try and nail rock and roll. Remember this shit? You play certain rock albums backwards, they're satanic messages. Let me tell you something. If you're sitting around your house playing your albums backwards, you are Satan. <laughs> You needn't look any further. And don't go ruining my stereo to prove a fucking point either. Come here, come here, listen. Can you hear that? Listen. Hey, cut it out. That's brand new, man. What the fuck are you doing? No, shut up. Listen real close. Can you hear that? It's crystal clear. Satan is Lord. Satan is Lord. It's like he's in the room. Oh my God, you're Satan. Oh, I still remember the cover. It was perfect. Simple, flat black with bright lead lettering spelling out Motley Crue with the umlauts and the stark title, Shout at the Devil. And an embossed upside-down pentagram that took up most of the album cover. It was beautiful. And as I slid my beloved copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide across the table to my friend and took my very first heavy metal album in return, I knew in my heart that I would forever belong to my sweet Lord Satan. Hell, Satan. Later, as I was consuming the flesh of the unborn on a black altar beneath a local graveyard, I knew that I was blessed by the unholy touch and that I would always and forever be a willing servant of Lucifer because I listened to heavy metal. Is that how this happened? No. 
Well, that's how people said it happens. In reality, I just realized that I didn't believe in any of that kind of shit, not even the cool parts about the devil. And yes, I know I have told this story many, many times on this podcast, but some of you might be just joining us, so I'll recap it briefly. My parents, caught up in the throes of the satanic panic, became deeply concerned that my playing Dungeons & Dragons might be impacting my mental health and, uh... To mention my immortal soul and gave me an ultimatum that I had to either quit playing D&D, sell all my books, or I could go to therapy. Now, as a red-blooded American male in the mid-1980s, therapy was pretty much the most frightening thing imaginable, so uh, I chose to surrender my books. Uh, You know I still kept playing D&D. What I did manage to arrange is that I would sell my books rather than, say, burning them on the holy fire of Jesus in our backyard barbecue grill. And because my parents were good Reaganites and deeply committed to capitalism, even capitalism did contradiction the teachings of Jesus Christ in pretty much every way, they recognized that I should get some money out of it. So I arranged with a friend of mine whose mother was deeply concerned that heavy metal music was corrupting his immortal soul to trade my D&D books for the heavy metal albums his mother was making him get rid of. It was a win-win scenario for both of us and for their infernal majesty, the Lord of Lies. Satan is love. I will never understand how my parents, who were worried about D&D, totally missed that heavy metal music had way more satanic influences than D&D ever did. I can only imagine it's because Geraldo and Oprah had not yet released any specials telling them they should be worried more about metal than a game with elves and fairies. Although, if you want to know the truth, it was probably the fairy part that worried my dad the most. You should go into this episode knowing one important fact. First fact, the devil isn't real. And the second is I have terrible taste in music. That's two. Fine, fine. Three facts. I... The devil isn't real, I have bad taste in music, and I'm very bad at math. But those two first facts are the relevant ones. The reason for their relevance is I'm going to pretend the devil is real and uh, that the devil gives a shit about music because (laughs) I think it's funny. The second is even by the dubious standards of a metal aficionado, my musical choices are, to say the least, um, somewhat uh, unfortunate. There are many gifted musicians out there making fucking brilliant metal music. Meanwhile, the stuff I like all kind of sounds like One, two, fuck yeah! though if anything my preferences in pop music are far far worse donna phil collins duran duran with that out of the way let's get into the history of heavy metal please open your textbooks to page 666 and drape yourself in these studded leather chains that uh, we are providing so we can get down to studying rock and roll of course was blatantly ripped off from the black blues and boogie musicians of the early night of the late 40s and early 1950s to become the uh, dominant form of music for everyone white under the age of 30 As the 1960s progressed, rock began to diversify. Some might say splintered into factions, with the mainstream becoming what we consider pop music today, and a smaller faction of what was at the time called hard rock, with driving drum beats, distorted guitars, and very, very loud, becoming what we call hard rock. 
There were considerable gray areas in between there. I mean, the Beatles dropped into hard rock with several songs, one of them notably... Alter Skelter's a hell of a fucking banger and got all those people killed by Charles Manson. Now, the Rolling Stones veered back and forth between hard rock and pop, and the Kinks existed much closer to the full-time hard rock spectrum. But it was one man who personified hard rock and is generally considered the godfather of heavy metal, Mr. Jimi Hendrix. Child, man. Fucking rock. Uh, Jimmy, man, if he'd lived, the world would have been a better place. Now, metal.mit.edu. Yes, pod friends, that is a real Massachusetts of Institute technology website. They say, quote, And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And while God rested, the devil created Heavy metal. Now, they actually said that. Still quoting, Just as physicists point to the Big Bang as the origin of the universe, so too can we pinpoint the exact moment and location when heavy metal birthed force onto the scene. That place and time? England's West Midlands, Birmingham, to be exact, in 1968. What happens when you have a generation come of age in an economically depressed industrial town during an era of lost innocence? Well, Black Sabbath happens. Unquote. No one can deny that Sabbath was heavy fucking metal. And you look, need to look no further than the name Black Sabbath to see how fucking badass this band was because the Black Sabbath was a take on the Witch's Sabbath and the black mass used by occultists to invoke our blessed Lord Satan. That's fucking awesome! Nor did the band stop there. They used inverted crosses, black candles, and openly referred to occultism in their music. Band members Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler were both dabblers in the occult, and Iommi told Guitar Warrior Magazine, quote, We were very interested in the satanic side of stuff, certainly Geezer and myself. We were interested in the cult just out of curiosity. We wondered what would happen if we did certain things, just like we wondered about life after death. We got into all sorts of stuff. Maybe it was the drugs in those days. I don't know. And we're still using that imagery with heaven and hell, unquote. And Geezer claimed to have actually seen the devil himself standing at his bedside. Though I suspect that might have been the drugs as well there, Geez. Anyway, quote, I woke up suddenly and there was this black shape standing by the foot of my bed and it absolutely frightened the bloody life out of me. This shape, for some reason, I thought was the devil himself. It was almost as if this thing was saying to me, it's either time to pledge allegiance or piss off. And from that moment on, I just went off the whole thing, unquote. Ozzy Osbourne, for his part, angrily disavows 
any association with the devil in Black Sabbath or any of his music. Ozzy would say that now, but I'm pretty sure that's Sharon talking. Sabbath was the only band in the late 60s and early 70s to dabble in the darkness. I mean, the Beatles dropped Aleister Crowley right onto the album cover of Sgt. Pepper's. The Stones recorded Sympathy for the Devil, a song that when I heard it in my preteens, simply couldn't believe it was even allowed to be on the radio. We're talking about the devil here. And the other heavy metal daddy, Led Zeppelin, inscribed the Crowley dictum, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, into the pressing of their third album. But if you've listened to any Led Zeppelin at all, you know that the band was way more into J.R.R. Tolkien than they were into Aleister Crowley. What about second breakfast? Don't worry. We're going to talk about Aleister Crowley later on this month. There was another young musician who really took to Sabbath levels of darkness, draping himself in living snakes, painted his eyes coal black, and singing songs with names like Dead Babies, Halo of Flies, Under My Wheels, Only Women Bleed, I Love the Dead, Black Widow, Isn't My Body, and the necrophiliac Cold Ethel. I never heard of him. Oh, you've heard of him, just not by the name of Vincent Fernier. You probably know him by the name he claims was given to him while playing with a Ouija board that told him he was the reincarnation of a 17th century witch that was named Alice Cooper. Honestly, how satanic could Alice Cooper fucking be? He was on the goddamn Muppet Show, for fuck's sake. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Alice Cooper. I mean, don't get me wrong. Being on the Muppet Show is very fucking metal. It's just not very satanic. Now, I should probably explain why these bands were into this kind of things in the early days of metal, and it's mostly because of the resurgence of occultism in the 1960s. Without getting too deep into the weeds, as the counterculture of the 1960s began rejecting the norms of their parents, one of the first things to go was religion, which, as I mentioned last week, had gotten pretty fucking boring. Also, Anton LaVey, another up-and-coming topic, connected Satan with sex. So a lot of young boomers who thought of themselves as edgy began to dabble in the occult, mysticism, astrology, Eastern religions, and New Age bullshit. I don't even think they believed in magic or spirits. I suspect that it was just an excuse to take lots of drugs and fuck. Hey, that sounds great. The problem was their good time fuck parties were laden with a lot of imagery that passionate believers in God considered satanic, which was ludicrous since most of these beliefs did not come out of Judeo-Christian theology, but instead of Eastern religions that didn't even recognize Satan as the awesome motherfucker that Satan really is. This would go on to become a problem. By the mid-1970s, heavy metal had solidified into its own distinct genre of rock and roll. 
Wikipedia describes it succinctly enough by saying, quote, heavy metal bands developed a thick, monumental sound characterized by distorted guitars, extended guitar solos, emphatic beats, and loudness, unquote. And it was probably best personified by one of my favorite fucking bands in the world, Judas Priest. gave the genre its fashion aesthetic. I mean, other people were doing it, but Judas Priest took it to the 10th degree. There's a lot of denim, leather, spike metal armbands, and adornments that any leather daddy in the Castro of San Francisco would have recognized instantaneously as a... This sounds very gay. Yet a generation of young boys thought that this was just about the most masculine thing they have ever seen. Look, today I understand how Priest lead singer Rob Halvern was shouting not at the, not only at the top of his lungs in his songs, but also in how he dressed about his sexuality. But at 14, I remained blissfully unaware that my fashion choices were wildly inappropriate for homophobic beardless boys who barely understood the heterosexual application of the human penis, much less how it could be used to enjoy consensual sexual activities with other men. They can't do that. They can and so it was by the 1980s that many, if not most, heavy metal bands infused at least some references into the devil in their music, whether from their own interest in the subject or far more likely because their record label saw how big bands like Sabbath, Zeppelin, and Cooper had used it to sell a metric fuck tons of records. That's capitalism, babe. And all of that dark imagery was a super strong dick hardener for the religious right. Rock and roll, since its inception, had been labeled, you know. That's the devil's music. But now they weren't even trying to hide it. This heavy metal openly told you they worshiped the devil and weren't the least bit ashamed of it. Needless to say, this thrilled the Godfathers, who finally had all the proof they needed to get this satanic trash banned for good. Except that isn't exactly what they did. For some reason, they focused on something that was even more absurd and, more importantly, utterly fictional. Backmasking or subliminal satanic message you could hear if you played your records in reverse. Why would anyone do that? I don't know. I guess they just wanted to trash their records. Yes, there is backmasking in records. It had been done for years. None other than old Al Crowley himself suggested that magical adepts train themselves to think backwards by listening to records in reverse, and musicians had used the technique to insert messages in songs since the early days of the rock records. The ba Beatles were famous for using it, leading to the earliest panic over them when a DJ in Detroit amplified the claim of a caller to his show that Revolution Number no. 9 had the following message embedded in the song if you played it backwards. Or if you want to hear it forwards... Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Which they claimed proved that Paul McCartney was, in fact, dead. This blew up into conspiracy theory that Paul was dead and had been replaced by a double. <laughs> I don't know how they couldn't figure out then 
that the caller to this show was obviously I'm high as fucking balls. This led to a wave of hysteria over his hidden satanic messages in music. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, In 1981, Christian DJ Michael Mills, well, you know his show must have been fun, began stating on Christian radio programs that Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven contained hidden satanic messages that were heard by the unconscious. In early 1982, the Trinity Broadcasting Network's Paul Crouch hosted a show with a self-described neuroscientist, William Yarrell, who argued that rock stars were cooperating with the Church of Satan to place hidden subliminal messages on records. Also in 1982, fundamentalist Christian pastor Gary Greenwald held public lectures on the dangers of backmasking, along with at least one mass record smashing. During the same year, 30 North Carolina teenagers led by their pastor, claimed that singers had been possessed by Satans who used their voices to create backwards messages and hold a record burning at their church. Allegations of demonic backmasking were also made by social psychologists, parents, critics of rock music, and the Parents Music Research Center was formed in 1985, which accused Led Zeppelin of using backmasking to promote Satanism, unquote. Yeah, you know, we talked in detail about the PMRC in episode 250. We're not going to take it. So if you want to know what that was all about, you can go find that there. A plug? Indeed, a plug. All of this nonsense culminated in a trial in which the BAM Judas Priest was sued by the parents of a 20-year-old adult male who died after drinking all night and smoking weed with his buddy and listening to a priest album, Stained Class. The two shot themselves with a 12-gauge shotgun. One died instantaneously, which a 12-gauge shotgun will do that to you, and the other was grievously wounded and disfigured, which also a 12-gauge shotgun will do that to you when you put it in your mouth, and went on to die three years later from those injuries. Why did these parents sue Judas Priest and their label Columbia Records for $6 million? Uh, For the money. For the money. Well, yes, but also according to a Rolling Stone article, quote, they claimed that Judas Priest had hidden subliminal message like, try suicide, do it, let's be dead, in their cover of Spooky Tooth's Better You Than Me, influencing Vance and Belknap, the two dudes that put shotguns in their mouth, to form a suicide pact, unquote. Now, look, pod friends, I'm going to play a little snippet of the song here. And I'm, I'm saying this because if you are at all inclined to think that this is real, you're going to want to turn off the podcast right now. And I, I'm asking you, please, please don't kill yourself by listening to this piece, tiny little piece of music. Everyone still here? Everyone okay? No one did anything crazy? Or, and also, not even that isn't even the best song on the record. I mean, beyond the realms of death, 
is way darker and way more intense than a fucking cover song. I, I'm going to blow my brains out. It's not going to be to a spooky tooth cover. It's going to be to an actual priest fucking... <laughs> Just don't kill yourself, okay? And also, backmasking subliminal messages, not a thing. In 1990, a trial took place in Reno, Nevada, and the band was there to testify. Their defense was not the obvious one. What performer wants his audience dead? Because, and follow me on this, because I think it should be a relevant argument to make, dead people don't buy records. Aside from a few deceased grandparents who might have gotten 10 albums for a dollar from Columbia House back in the 1980s. But this, this wasn't the primary defense mounted by the record company label lawyers. The defense was, there was in the First Amendment to put subliminal messages in your songs. That's your defense? The band is up there testifying that they did not put any messages at all in the songs, and if they had put messages in there, the message wouldn't be kill yourself, it would be buy more albums. Guitarist Glenn Tipton bought a copy of the record and played it backwards to prove that you could hear anything you wanted in backwards lyrics. At one point in time, the reverse copy that they played was supposed to say, Hey, Ma, my chair's broken. Give me a peppermint and help me keep a job. I mean, it didn't, but it kind of wanted to if you thought you could hear things like that in the song. And one of the attorneys for the family actually wrote an op-ed in the LA Times condemning the music industry for their disgusting practice of embedding commands in reverse music, where he actually said, quote, the most misunderstood facet of the celebrated case is that it affects the record company's First Amendment rights of free speech. On the contrary, the lawsuit is a product liability case, wherein a defective product was placed in the stream of commerce causing harm. The fact that there is language involved in the packaging, here the lyrics, does not provide a defense. Sure, speech was involved, but it's the non-speech element, subliminal message, which is the basis for liability. Although the trite, vulgar, and violent lyrics are protected, they are actionable only that they max the poison accompanying them. On a large scale, the public is becoming more aware that not only nonsense but harm comes out of much rock music. No amount of parental control can counteract hidden messages that have unpredictable effects on different people. This mind intrusion is the worst kind of invasion of privacy. We're not censoring Judas Priest one iota. If they and the other artists who use subliminals don't develop more self-restraint and concern for their consuming public, then it may turn out that there were actually three shots fired on December 23rd, 1985, unquote. The presiding judge did not dismiss this patently fucking nonsensical argument and went on to hold that there were actually indeed subliminal messages in the music, but those messages were not responsible for the suicides. When, I guess? Yeah, I guess. Look, science seems to support subliminal messages having some minor impact on behavior, but the most reliable sources say the effect is marginal and short-lived, and also the impact seems to work best 
visually, like a brief image flashed on a screen during a commercial. Their effect is more like a nudge than a push. It can't make you do anything, whether that's consumer-refreshing Coca-Cola or shove a 12-gauge shotgun in your mouth. Also, and this is the most important thing, no one's putting satanic messages or suicidal comments backwards in the music. Anything you hear when you play a song backwards is what your brain wants you to hear. It's called apophenia, and it's how our brain spots patterns in random objects that don't actually exist. If you expect to hear satanic messages in backwards music, then you will hear backwards satanic messages in backwards music because your brain puts them there. It's the same thing that makes us see faces in clouds or faces on Mars. And if you need proof, let me play this. This is me reversed talking to you. Sounds pretty sad diabolical, right? It isn't. It's me bragging about my sexual prowess and how big my penis is. Go ahead, reverse it. See for yourself. And what infuriated me then, as it does now, is how... There were no backwards messages about Satan in any heavy metal song. All the messages from the devil were clearly audible right there in the lyrics and the imagery on the album cover. You did not have to fuck up your record needle by running it backwards. You just played them the regular old way. That's pretty clear. Bands like Merciful Fate, Midnight, Electric Wizard, Coven, Wait Watan, Belfagor were and are openly satanic. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They openly sing about demon hell spells, wizards, witches, and blood. And all of that just isn't just a coded metaphor for sex. I mean, yeah, a lot of it was, but not all of it. Other bands were more oblique. I mean, Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast is is about the devil, but they're not singing the devil's infernal praises. Motley Crue's A Shout at the Devil was actually telling the devil to fuck off. Though, that wasn't always the case. According to ClassicRot.com, quote, Tom Zatut, the band's A&R rep for label Electro Records, Shout of the Devil originally had an even darker, if only slightly tweaked title, that reflected bassist Nikki Six's growing interest in satanic energy. He, Nikki Six, wanted to call the record Shout with the Devil, and Zatut wrote in Motley Crue's 2001 autobiography, The Dirt, it was upsetting to the label, and it was upsetting to me. By this point, Six was enamored with satanic symbols, like the pentagram that graces their eventual album cover, and that brooding atmosphere eventually crept into the recording sessions, most famously, for their leftover track, I Will Survive, during which they reclined on their backs and attempted to chant Jesus is Satan backwards. Six, the band's primary songwriter, wanted the album and its corresponding tour to explore the concept of evil. The bassist started to believe that President Ronald Wilson Reagan Ah, ah, he said it, he said it, was the Antichrist himself, given that his names were each six letters long, 666. He was the devil, and I wanted everybody to shout at it, he wrote in the dirt. Both Six and Zatu <laughs> noted that they witnessed objects levitating and flying around the base's home, which he shared with Lita Ford. Describing one particularly disturbing visit, the A&R rep said that he freaked out after seeing a knife and fork rise off the table and stick into the ceiling. There is no more shout with the devil, he told Six. If you keep shouting with the devil, you're going to get killed. So the album, and its signature title track, were issued under the revised name, <laughs> revised name. We tell these religious fanatics 
Read this. Shout at the devil. 6-7-1984 TV interview holding up the cover. It doesn't say shout with the devil. Shout at the devil. That's why we put the pentagram right on the front. Singer Vince Neil added, pointing to the image, a lot of things, if you stand in the middle of them, in the middle of it, the evil can't get into you, unquote. Look, I, I don't know what went on with any of this or whether they said that because it just sounded cool, but I will point out, they were doing a stupendous amount of drugs. So anything that they might have saw flying around Nikki Six's apartment probably had less to do with the devil than more to do with the stunning amount of cocaine they were consuming. The band Wasp loved inferring the devil, but when you listen to the lyrics, they're basically about fucking. And by the late 1980s, black metal, black metal, basically a super dark bass-driven style with sepulchral vocals and screaming falsettos intertwined, became the home of the darkest and most intense satanic metal. And hair metal, which was openly about fucking, became the dominant mainstream style. And look, heavy metal isn't for everyone. I'm the first to admit that a lot of 80s metal was just, you know, not good. And in the 80s, the bands would just crank out loud music for the sake of loud music, and they used satanic imagery because that's what they thought they would sell the records. And that shit did work. I bought records from bands I had never fucking heard of because of a cool album cover. And yeah, that worked great when it came to Ronnie James Dio, but not so much when it came to a band like Battleaxe. Although now when I listen to that, that, that is actually pretty awesome. Look, a lot of musical sins could be covered up by slapping some demonic imagery, imagery and blistering guitar solos over some bad vocals and shitty lyric writing, and us teenage metalheads would buy it. Why would we buy it? Because the devil is fucking cool. Dude, he totally is. If you are a rebellious teenager... You're in constant search for things to rebel against. And in the 1980s, a big thing for me was my parents' religion. My parents were and are deeply committed evangelical Christians, and they're not hypocrites about it. That means they didn't drink, they didn't swear, they didn't dance, or have fun in any way. So I decided that a great way to thumb my nose at them in a very discreet, only listen on headphones and disguise my record album sort of way was to listen to heavy metal that kind of inferred that the devil was fucking cool. The bands, and especially their labels, knew this, and they marketed the shit out of satanic music in order to sell as many records to dumbass teenagers as they could. Because again, capitalism. Young people, young men in particular, are drawn to the images of darkness because they invoke power in the mind. And when you're 15 and just starting to think of yourself as an adult, you have zero of the powers of an adult. You yearn for some kind of power. And the devil is the ultimate fuck you to authority. What with that whole better to reign in hell than serve in heaven is. And plus, you know, it just looks fucking cool. I mean, the imagery of flames, skulls, pentagrams, horns, torture soul, hands raised in supplication. That's going to beat that kitten on a limb hanging out, hanging on it, telling to hang in there. And also, the girls who were into metal 
with their big hair, their ripped clothes, heavy black makeup that said, fuck you, cheerleader Becky. This is a look that says, I'm, I ain't going to fuck you, but I will drive you crazy with the idea that I might fuck you. I am 53 years old, and to this day, I will go for the metal chick over the girl next door every goddamn day of the week. I mean, age-appropriate metal chicks. I'm, I'm not out there cruising for you know, 14-year-old metal girls anymore because that would be a felony. And also, they're not even listening to the same metal that I was. None of this meant that the kids were fucked up. It meant that the kids were kids. But society, sure, this fuck took it to mean that we were fucked up. Quoting from an abstract to an article entitled Heavy Metal Rock and Gangster Rap Music Promote Violence. Quote, Heavy Metal Rock and Gangster Rap. Yes, they specifically spelled it gangsta. Are more violent than ever before. Children and teenagers should not be allowed to listen to the violent messages in this music. In 1989, the American Medical Association released a report that concluded that music is a greater influence on the life of a teenager than television. Those involved in the rock culture were more likely to be low achievers, involved in drugs, sexually active, and involved in satanic activities, stating that the issue is too complicated to prove one-on-one -on -one correlation, which means they couldn't fucking prove it at all. The report nonetheless concluded a fascination with heavy metal music was an indicator of adolescent alienation and possible emotional health problems. Unquote. Fuck you then. Look, I can't speak for every kid who listened to metal then or now, but I can speak for me and my friends. Heavy metal didn't get us into violence or Satan, and it certainly didn't get us into drugs. We did that for ourselves. And as far as sex goes, well, we, we hoped it would get it into that, but it, it seemed that being a football star was a way more reliable route to having sex than what we were doing with heavy metal. We weren't low achievers. We were regular fucking kids. And if we came across as angry, well, why wouldn't we be? Even at 16, it was really fucking clear to me and my friends that we weren't going to get the kind of lives our parents had unless we were willing to suit up and conform to our parents' idea of what an adult ought to be. And most of us eventually did do exactly that. That's Generation X's greatest sin. I know it's my greatest sin because joining the military wasn't my idea. It was me not having any other fucking choice than to do exactly what my parents wanted me to do because there were no other options for me. So yeah, I was angry and I listened to angry music and I affected a pose of a bad boy when I was around my metal friends. I like dark, heavy music and songs about the devil because it made me just for a few fucking minutes feel like I had the illusion of control over, over my life. And that illusion was better than having no control at all. And finally, I keep reinforcing this. We knew it was bullshit. Only a real fucking idiot or someone with deep mental illness thought that the devil was real. I'm not saying that there weren't kids like that, but the vast majority of us thought that the devil and all the satanic imagery that we saw in heavy metal albums, uh, we thought about it the same way that we thought about comic books, Star Wars, and D&D. &D. It was a fantasy. 
You couldn't summon the devil by playing your record backwards or turning your parents' cross upside down because the devil just... Not a thing. And even if you happen to believe in God, which I did at the time that I was big into metal, you knew that the devil didn't appear because you blasted venom at ear-bleeding volume into your headphones because the bands were telling us that. They were telling us that it wasn't real. You didn't need a degree in music or theology to see the wink and the nod in the music, the costumes and the set dressing because all the people freaking about the devil luring kids into darkness were out of their fucking minds because the kids knew it was bullshit. And that was more appealing to us because we knew it was bullshit because so many dumb adults believed that it was a thing. So even the hysteria about demonic influence in our music made us buy more albums, which is the whole fucking point in the first place. Like I said last week, the only real devils in the world work in marketing and they are very very good at their jobs. That is it for our show this week and for part two of Spooktacular 2022. When I got into researching this week's topics, I was shocked to see how many academic articles there were talking about this week's topic. I mean, I couldn't read them because our research budget begins and ends with Google, but I could read the abstracts and a lot of very serious people wrote a lot of very serious words on the issue. And I'd like to think that this show is a reply to those serious words. And our reply is this. Never say we don't elevate the discourse. Speaking of bringing down the tone, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods so others can scan those reviews, find us, and listen to our wet fart sounds and wonder why you thought that they should listen to wet fart sounds. Now, you need to do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will show up at your window with a boombox like Say Anything, but instead of Peter Gabriel, he will be playing Slayer's Seasons of the Abyss. And so for me, Dave, wolf screaming lonely in the night. I'm the blood stain on the stage. Blood so producer. He's the tear in your eye. Been tempted by his lie. He's a knife in your back. He's rage. Yes, that actually sums him up. Gavin and all the fictional Motley crew groupies on this show. You want to say that the song was pretty clear that they were shouting at the devil, not with the devil. It was right there in the liner notes. And we'll see you all next week. Shout at the devil. Give me the love in your eyes, the blood between your thighs. Then make you cry for more. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Dave does not exist. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.